Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, and that'll be kind of our launching point this morning. Matthew 7. I'm going to pray for a moment while you find that text. Our Father, we come this morning to you in dependence and in desperation to hear from you. And we only hear from you as your word is proclaimed. And so we would ask you, Lord, to be a help to us this morning, particularly for the topic at hand. We ask you, Lord, to enliven our hearts to know the truth, to live the truth, to believe the truth. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. God is infinitely holy. He is utterly pure in ways that are beyond our understanding. He cannot, he will not fellowship with the ungodly. He will not fellowship with the unholy. And the unholy cannot fellowship with him. God is too pure, too holy. And mankind, although made in the image of God, has become unholy and tainted and impure because of sin. The inclination of our hearts is evil 100% of the time. Because God is perfectly just and righteous, and he will not and he cannot according to his, simple, his, his simply holy nature, he is pure in the simplicity of other total white hot holiness and he cannot excuse sin he will not all sin is sin against god who is the creator of all things and all sin is eternal because it it can't be undone you can't unsin a sin it can't be reversed and so the wages of sin the punishment for sin must be eternal all sin shall be paid for by death The God who is perfectly just, perfectly righteous, has demonstrated grace and mercy by providing a holy, righteous sacrifice for sin. Someone to die and to receive the wrath of God instead of you and instead of me. And that substitute sacrifice is none other, of course, than his son, Jesus Christ. And in God's grace, he sends his Holy Spirit to breathe new life into lost souls, who didn't even know they were spiritually dead, didn't even know they needed life, to open their eyes to the need for forgiveness, to lead them graciously, to humbly repent of their sin, acknowledging that they have been loyal to their sin and not to God, and to receive by faith in Jesus Christ the forgiveness, the eternal justification, the forever forgiveness of their sins, to have their sins sunk to the bottom of the ocean, to have their sins separated as far as the east is from the west, to have their sins erased, to have their sins accounted for no more. And because the believer in Christ is now considered in the courts of heaven to possess the very righteousness of God himself, The certain promise of eternal life and future glory is ours to grasp and to look forward to and to enjoy. And this is a glorious path. It's a pathway that Jesus called a gate, the gate to salvation. Jesus had a name for this gate, but he also named the second gate. Look with me at Matthew 7, verse 13. First, he names the gate of salvation, enter by the narrow gate. 
That's the gate of salvation. Then he goes on, For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This is a shocking teaching put forward by the Lord Jesus himself. For us who know Christ as Savior and who have graciously been ushered through that very narrow gate of salvation, the the fact of the relative rarity of salvation compels us to be thankful, doesn't it? And it compels us to worship. It compels us to tremble before our gracious God who alone is responsible for snatching us off the the broad way and and the broad gate and bringing us to the narrow way, the narrow gate. And so we understand that. We, we, in a sense, shake our heads in disbelief that we're going through the narrow gate. But that also means that nearly every person in this room carries a burden at one level or another. And that is the burden of loved ones who remain in their lost state. Parents who don't know Christ. Brothers who don't know Christ. Sisters who don't know Christ, aunts and uncles who don't know Christ, and maybe most painfully of all, children who don't know Christ. In some cases, your lost loved ones have made it clear that they never want to talk about spiritual things with you. In other cases, you talk and repeat yourself, and yet you see the resistance and the blank stares, or, or maybe worse, lame acknowledgments like, well, well, I'm glad the Jesus thing works for you, I'll go my own path. And of course, there's the uncomfortable and the painful situation of the one who claims to be a believer in Christ, may even be attending the church regularly, yet their knowledge of the gospel is lacking, and their total lack of spiritual fruit in their lives, it indicates to you a grave concern for the reality of their regeneration. Are they really saved? That this loved one might actually be one of the weeds among the wheat of the true church. I often think about the questions that I receive as a pastor, and if you ask me what's the top question, there's not even a close second. The top question I receive as a pastor is, what do I do with my unbelieving relatives? We've been going through our summer series here on biblical answers to difficult questions, and that's what I'd like to address today. How do I deal with unbelieving relatives? How do I deal with that unspeakable pain It's something we can't wrap our minds around. And there's really two layers that we have to deal with. There's the the practical layer and then there's the theological layer. The, The first layer we have to deal with is how are you going to interact with these? How are you going to interact with the one that's lost in your family? If they say, I never want to hear the gospel from you again, do we abide by that? Do we respect that wish? If the unbelieving loved one is living an openly sinful lifestyle such as homosexuality or transgenderism or a live-in boyfriend or doing drugs, do you quietly go along with it for the sake of keeping the family together or, or maybe keeping future gospel opportunities open? What do we do? That's the first layer we have to deal with. and We'll deal with that one, though, at the very end. The second layer we have to deal with is the heart layer. You have to deal with your own heart before the Lord. Because we tend toward what one author called spiritual nepotism. That God is obligated to save someone because that person happens to be related to me. 
that that somehow makes him more special. And that is a heart issue. And dare I say that is a sin issue. Both of these layers have only one solution. There's only one way to handle both of those layers, one tool, and that is the tool of truth. This is such an emotionally devastating issue because if you know your Bible, you know that the judgment of God is coming. You know that he will always punish sin. And we really don't have the capacity in our own power to emotionally be okay with that, to be okay with the possibility of my father or my mother or my aunt or my uncle or my brother or my sister or my child that I held in my hand burning in the flames of hell for all eternity. We cannot grasp that. And I don't think we're built to. Maybe it's easier when we think about that the lake of fire, hell, the place where the worm does not die and the flames are not quenched. It is rightly for the terrible and rebellious unbeliever who repeatedly rejected the gospel of Christ, all those nameless and faceless, insubordinate, defiant, stubborn, contrary, Christ-hating people I've never met. But when it's my mom, when it's my boy, when it's my brother I grew up with, when it's my sister. There's no amount of emotional strength. There's no amount of bad theology that says, well, he's really a good person at heart. God knows that. There's no amount of just trying not to think about it that can possibly be a true and real comfort. You can't bring up enough comfort in your own power. There's only one way to handle this issue with eternal truths revealed in the word of God. There can be no substitute And I'll tell you what, this topic will test your loyalty, it'll test your fidelity, it'll test the very foundation of your own salvation and your love for the Lord, because this issue, perhaps more than any other issue, tempts us to sin by standing in judgment over God. We must have truth. And only on truth can we build a platform of peace and contentment in the face of watching unbelieving loved ones race to the judgment of God as fast as they can get there. And for all of you with unbelieving relatives, which I think is probably the vast majority of you in this room, you have a choice before you this day, and that choice is to believe the truth or to hopelessly try to find comfort in the lies that you tell yourself. I can't make that choice for you, but I can, with all of my heart, try to convince you that the truth is the only path to genuine contentment. It's not my intention to be cold or harsh at all, but simply to outline truth, but I do make this commitment to you by the time we're done. I believe we'll all have great and tremendous hope because truth embraced always leads to joy, right? So we'll end on that hope. Now, as we've been doing a lot during our summer series here, this will be more of a Bible study. We're going to look at a lot of different scriptures. It'll be easier for, to, for you to note the references. I'm not going to have you turn anywhere else because there's just too much to do here. Because what I'd like to do this morning is give you seven truths upon which to build a platform of peace and contentment in the face of watching unbelieving loved ones race to the gates of hell as fast as they can go. Seven truths to build a platform of peace and contentment Truth number one, God chose those to be saved. God chose those to be saved. 
Now, this isn't a sermon on the doctrine of election. We've proven the doctrine of election many other times. And, and could I say this? You not agreeing with the doctrine of election doesn't make it any less true, any more than you saying, I don't agree that the sun should come up tomorrow. It's still going to happen. But that's where we have to start because salvation is an eternal issue, both for the future, but also about the past. To deny the doctrine of election is very simply to deny the Bible. Ephesians 1, 4 even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That he chose us. It's, it's a word that means to select, to choose for oneself. It's the Greek word that gives us our English word, election. We didn't make up the doctrine of election. We took it right from Ephesians 1.4. Or consider 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Foreknowledge is not passive knowledge. It's active knowledge that made a choice, that made a determination. It is determinative knowledge. Not curiosity that God's looking down the corridor of time to see who's going to receive him. Romans 9.23 says that God chose some in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So God chose those to be saved. And what's the basis that God chose? That, that is a mystery that only the heart of God knows. But we get one little clue, one reason in all of Scripture for the doctrine of election, God chose on the basis of love. Of love. First, or Ephesians 1, 4, I'll continue with, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself. This is the primary reason given for God's choice of his people. Moses proclaimed to Israel in Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. We get this. We understand this. If you've been at grace for any period of time, we glory in this. But I have a simple question to offer you. Will you bow to God's choice? Or will you stand in judgment over God if ultimately he has not chosen someone that you wish he had? That's the choice before us. Do we bow to God's choice or not? Here's a second truth. Second truth is the family of God is defined by obedience to the gospel. The family of God is defined by obedience to the gospel. And I'm going to camp on this for a few minutes here because Jesus went to great lengths to make it very, very clear that God's family is not defined by DNA, is not defined by human relationships, is not defined by family relationships. And I want to show you this at a variety of levels. Matthew chapter 8, there's a man who's been following Christ and listening to his preaching, and he, he declares to Jesus, I want to follow you. But the man said to Jesus in Matthew 8, 21, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Let me go bury my father. Now, we read that and we say, well, that's a reasonable request. Go have the funeral and then follow Christ. Uh, let me be clear. The man's father wasn't dead. 
This was a common way of saying, let me stay home, work in the family business, fulfill my responsibility to my father until he dies, because if I leave now, he's going to cut me out of his will and I won't get anything. I got to hang around for him to kick the bucket so I can get my inheritance. After that, I'm happy to follow you. So the man is telling Jesus, yes, I want to follow you, but I need to get my money first. In other words, he was a superficial follower of Christ. Jesus pressed the man to follow him anyway. And he said, in Matthew 8, 22, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead, meaning the spiritually dead can take care of their own business. And what Jesus is saying is your father is spiritually dead. You follow me. Now, this isn't somehow a lack of concern for the man's father, but in his sovereignty, Jesus knew the heart condition of that man's father, and he's making this point very clear. Follow me or follow your family, but you cannot do both. You can't do both. You cannot follow Christ and be totally loyal to your unbelieving family at the same time. You can't. And Jesus certainly didn't say, hey, you've been following me around for some time now. I'll make sure your dad gets into the kingdom too. Wink, wink. So there's that level. And you might say, okay, Steve, what if you're related to Jesus himself? Does that give you any special privileges, special treatment, free passes into heaven? Mark 3 records a time early in Jesus' ministry when he was teaching to a crowd. And Jesus' mother and his brothers were nearby and they were trying to get his attention. And we pick up the story in Mark 3.32 and the crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And Jesus' point is very clear. He uses his own earthly family, the, the ones, humanly speaking, Jesus was most genetically related to. Mary, his mother, and his brothers, Mark 6, 3, lists them, James, Joseph, Judas, or Jude, and, and Simon. These are the ones closest to him family-wise, genetically, DNA, we would say, and they weren't automatically part of the eternal family of God. But Jesus refuses to show them special spiritual privilege just because they're family. Now, if we fast forward a few years, we know that Mary came to believe on Christ as her Savior. She shows up with the believers waiting the Holy Spirit in Acts 1. We know that James came to faith. He became the writer of the epistle of James. We know that Jude came to faith. He became the writer of the epistle of Jude. But here in this moment, in this scene, Jesus shows no favoritism whatsoever. And in fact, he contrasts his own family with those who hear and obey the gospel. Now, why does Jesus do this, by the way, in this situation? Just a few verses earlier, we get the commentary on the spiritual condition of his family. Mark 3, 20 and 21 says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, here's the spiritual condition of, their fam of his family. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying... He is out of his mind. The Greek is, he was nuts. Not really. Can you imagine your own family thinking you're crazy? John 7, 5 said, for not even his own brothers believed in him. Okay, family in general, we get that. 
How about his mom? Surely Jesus' own mother should get special treatment. She gave birth to him. In Luke 11, Jesus was once again teaching the crowds, and one woman was so overcome by the truth that she wanted to say the nicest thing she could think of. And so she shouted out to Jesus a blessing upon his mother. Luke eleven twenty seven. as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Now, in our humanity, we might expect Jesus to say something like, Thanks, yeah, mom's been great. She did that whole Bethlehem emergency birth thing, and she's been a great mom. Thanks, I'll pass your love on to her. But he didn't do that. Instead, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that even his own mother gets no special spiritual blessing or favor for simply being his mother. When the woman shouted out this blessing on Mary, Jesus retorted immediately in Luke eleven twenty eight. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. He said, rather, this is an emphatic particle in Greek that means on the contrary. Older English would say, nay, never, or no, instead. He's saying, uh uh-uh, uh uh-uh, uh 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 no, rather. Now, why do we say this? This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. That if being related to Jesus gets you no spiritual favors, then being related to you will not get anybody spiritual favors. So what does that mean we do? It means we fall solely and only on the mercy and grace of God because those are the only variables that count. DNA does not. Here's a third truth. Salvation is the work of God alone. Salvation is the work of God alone. In our sinful humanity, we often so desperately want to play a part in our salvation from sin, don't we? To think that somehow when Paul says in Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one, that somehow that didn't fully apply to me or to my loved one that's not saved. Salvation is the work of God alone without human help or assistance of any kind. And this is everywhere in Scripture. John taught, or Jesus taught rather in John 3 that the work of the Holy Spirit regenerating the lost soul is solely at the Holy Spirit's discretion, just like the wind blows wherever it wants. In Acts 9, Jesus himself knocked Paul to the ground, blinded him, and saved him from his sins. Acts 16, 14, Lydia was hearing the gospel from Paul, and the Lord opened her heart, the text says. In Acts 13, 48, when Gentiles heard the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And Jesus himself said in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can. 1 Peter 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, why do we say this today? This is tremendous news. This is incredible news because now we're relying only on God's power, only on God's saving grace, only on God's will, only on God's mercy, only on God's eternal plan. There are no other variables. If your loved one dies out of, outside of faith in Christ, it was not 
because you didn't try hard enough. It was not because you weren't able to do something. It was not because you weren't clear enough. Salvation is God's responsibility. Now that brings up the question, but what about the person who really wanted to be saved? If God is the one saving and and God is the one that makes the choice, what about the one that God doesn't choose, but they're begging, but God, I really wanted to be saved. What about that person? Well, that brings us to truth number four. The lost will be judged in total righteousness. The lost will be judged in total righteousness. What that means is they'll be judged on the basis of their own sins. There is no such person as a person who really wants to be saved, but God refused. That person does not exist. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All, meaning anyone who's under the burden of their own sin. And conversely, every lost person who does not come to faith in Christ did not come under the burden of their own sin. Jesus said in Matthew 9, 12, that only the sick person needs a, a physician, meaning that if you don't think you need forgiveness, you're not going to be forgiven. Jesus said in Revelation 12, 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Revelation 20, at the great white throne judgment, the books are opened and each and every lost person from all the ages are gathered and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what the, they had done. Someone might be tempted to place themselves on the throne of God and think that somehow I am more compassionate than God. But shouldn't the lost be given a second chance, especially if it's my uncle? Shouldn't the lost be given more grace, more mercy? How about this? Shouldn't they even have a chance after death to say, I'm really, really sorry? The idea of the lost being given a second chance is based on two faulty assumptions. The first faulty assumption is that they weren't given enough chances to begin with. And the second faulty assumption is that the fires of judgment could or would or might even bring repentance. Sometimes we want to have sort of a spiritualized version of the program that sends youth to jail for a, a day so that they can see what it's like to say, wouldn't it be great if we could have our unbelieving relatives see hell for a day and then they would really come to faith? Would they? In Luke 16, Jesus tells the story of a rich man and a poor man that the rich man had mistreated in this life and the rich man was selfish and had no faith in God while the poor man had faith in the Lord. They both died And the poor man went to his heavenly reward and the rich man went to the place of fiery judgment. And in the story, the rich man is able to call out to Abraham who is with the poor man in in paradise. And the rich man asked Abraham to cool his flaming tongue with some water. How would you send the poor guy to come serve me? And let me just make two observations about this. First of all, the rich man was still treating the poor man like a nobody. He hadn't changed, even in the flames. And secondly, the rich man didn't ask for mercy. He didn't ask to be released. He didn't acknowledge any sin whatsoever. He said, come down here from paradise and serve me. He didn't repent. When the lost are judged in the final judgment, that judgment will be completely righteous, completely deserved. And I know this is still difficult for us to fathom on a human level, but... Other truths will help us. Let me give you a fifth truth. 
and this one's a little bit long, but it's important. A fifth truth is, in the coming kingdom, your passion for the glory of God will be all-consuming. In the coming kingdom, your passion for the glory of God will be all-consuming. Let me walk through the logic of this. In the kingdom, coming kingdom, your passion for the glory of God will be all-consuming. You will be, according to Scripture, present in heaven. You will be with those in Revelation 4.13 shouting to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And part of the glory of God is that he is righteous. That his holiness and his perfection of character, they're, they're consuming and he's white hot in his purity. Now in our finite little minds right now we we can't possibly grasp the gravity and the depth of an offense against a holy and pure God that every single sin represents but here's the truth if God is infinite then God's holiness and perfection is infinite and if God's holiness and perfection are infinite then violations of God's holiness and perfection are infinite Let me say that again. If God is infinite, then God's holiness and perfection is infinite. And if God's holiness and perfection are infinite, then violations of God's holiness and perfection are infinite. How can we understand this? Very simple. James 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. You fail God one time in the courts of heaven. You failed him infinitely. You've broken every law. You lied once. You're a murderer. You're an adulterer. You're a thief. You're everything. Because you violate the infinite holiness of an infinite God, that violation is an infinite violation. You see, God's glory is the point of everything. That's the point of everything. From Genesis to Revelation, it's the point of redemptive history. It's the point of everything tried to think of how we could illustrate the fact that God's glory is the point of everything. And I I thought the book of Psalms might help us. Psalms alone is consumed with God's glory. Psalm 8.1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 21.5, his glory is great through your salvation. Psalm 24, 7, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Psalm 26, 8, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Psalm 29, 1, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Psalm 29.2, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. 29.3, the voice of the Lord is over the waters, the God of glory thunders. Psalm 57.5, again, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all. Psalm 66, verse 2, sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Psalm 71.8, my mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. 
In Psalm 72, 19, blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Psalm 102, 15, nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. 104, 31, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. 105, 3, glory in his holy name. 113, 4, his glory is above the heavens. And 115, 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, that to your name be glory. What's the theme of the whole of everything? It is the glory of God, not Jesus wants to be your co-pilot. You will be so consumed with the glory of God that when he presents the crowns of glorious reward to you in heaven, Revelation 4.10 says that you will cast your crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive what? Glory you'll be consumed. Now, if the point of everything is the glory of God, then God will be glorified in everything. 1 Peter 4.11, in everything God will be glorified through Jesus Christ. Then if God is going to be glorified in everything, listen carefully, then God will be glorified through every human being who has ever lived. Every single one. What do we mean by this? There are true groups of people, those who will be saved and those who will not. The narrow gate, the wide gate. First, God will be glorified by the salvation of the elect. Psalm 79, 9, help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Romans 9.23 says that you are a vessel of mercy to make known the riches of his glory, that for all eternity you will sing the praises of his grace and his mercy. But second, God will be glorified by the righteous eternal punishment of the lost. Hell is not somehow representing the failure of God to save. Romans 9 calls the lost vessels of wrath those who make known God's wrath and power. Here's a little surprise. Revelation 14.10 describes the coming judgment of hell like this. Quote, The wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and the lost will be tormented with fire and sulfur. Here's the surprise. In the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb? Who is that? Jesus Christ and the holy angels presiding over hell in which all the lost of all the ages, all the unholy fallen angels, the coming Antichrist, and of course Satan himself will be tormented day and night forever and ever to show what? The power and wrath of God. Why? Because his wrath glorifies him. God is not the tame American evangelical God falsely described purely in terms of his love and kindness. God is a God who will be glorified and exalted through his grace and his mercy to a few who do not deserve it and through his wrath to many who do deserve it. Our passion is to ultimately be for the glory of God. And that might be difficult for us now. We're weighed down by this world, by our own flesh, but... Please take heart in the coming kingdom. You'll be so consumed with yearning for God's glory. You'll be the ones taking the crowns off your own head and and in essence saying, no, to you alone belong glory. 
You will long to see God receive glory. That will be your greatest pleasure, is to see him receive glory. But I know we're still left here in this world dealing with the reality of unsaved loved ones. And so I want to have our last two truths deal with that. Truth number six, whatever grief and heartache you have now will be removed. Whatever grief and heartache you have now will be removed. The classic verse about your life in the coming kingdom says in Revelation 21.4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I want to deconstruct that just a little bit for you. All the things that you will not have in the coming kingdom. You will not have tears of sadness. And I want you to notice the the tenderness of God. It's not just that God will remove the reasons to weep. It's he's pictured as personally wiping your tears away. There's closeness. There's proximity. There's relationship. This is not God shouting from across the the throne room of heaven, hey, stop crying, there's nothing to cry about anymore. This is God putting his arm around you, pulling out his own hanky, saying, let me dry your tears and may you never weep again. What else will you not have in the coming kingdom? Death. We'll have death. Think about how much grief we experience over death now. The older you get, the more funerals you start going to, right? And it kind of becomes a game of who's going to be living last among all your friends and relatives. Death separates us from our loved ones. Even the thought of our own deaths creeps in, and and we start doing the math. And when you realize you're closer to your death than you are to your birth, statistically, that's a daunting thought, isn't it? When you're 18, you look ahead and you say, I've got the rest of my life. Then suddenly you blink and you're 48 and you go, I I got half of my life. Then you blink and you're 68. I got a little bit of my life. You blink and you're 98. I can't believe I made it this far. And those thoughts creep in. And yes, you have faith in Christ and you're not afraid of death. Where is the sting of death? But somehow it just doesn't feel fair that we have to go through that. You say, Lord, you took Enoch, you took Elijah, could I be number three? And you pray for the rapture. No more tears of sadness, no more death. How about this? You will not have any more mourning. That's sorrow over loss, sorrow over emotional grief. The grief associated with death will be removed There seems to be somewhat of a retrofitting of peace and happiness in which the trauma and disappointment and the loss from your life are are taken from you. That it's not just that the pain stops, the pain is retroactively taken away. That all the agony of this life is, is undone. No more mourning. Listen, those who are done with an event that is traumatic to them still mourn that event long after it's happened. But God says that won't happen. No more tears of sadness, no more death, no more mourning. How about this one? No more crying. And you might say, wait a minute, we just had the tears of sadness taken away. This is different. This isn't a few tears in the eyes. This isn't a, a private, quiet whimper, a, a small crying. These are, this word speaks of shouting and wailing and screaming. This is the uncontrollable anguish that you have when you receive news of a loved one's sudden death. It takes your breath away and you cry in ways you never thought you could. 
It's not just the tears of the past are removed, though. It's that there will never be reason for weeping ever again. No more tears of sadness, no death, no more mourning, nor crying, and no more pain. This is a general word for affliction, toil, labor, distress. It's kind of like if you didn't believe me on the first four, here's the last one that covers them all. And I hope you'll take comfort from this, that whatever anguish and angst you have over your lost loved ones now will be taken away. You will not feel that into eternity. And you might say, great, I'm comforted by the future. I'm, I'm grasping the, the high theological foundation to entrust the Lord's redemptive plan to the Lord. But I have to ask, but what about my unsaved relatives now? That brings us to our final truth this morning. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. All right, we're going to put our boots on here. We're going to get our uniforms on, and we're going to get ready to serve because this is where our part comes. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What is that saying? To the most likely to be saved and to the least likely to be saved. You've all done this. I've done this. You meet an unbeliever who's just a great guy and you, you think, boy, he's just this close to coming to Christ. And you meet somebody else who's, who's drugged up and who's messed up his life and you say, boy, it would take a miracle for him to come to Christ. I got news for you. It takes a miracle for anyone to come to Christ. This is where the rubber really meets the road. Because you're going to have to decide to whom you're going to be loyal, God or your loved ones. And so I hope that's a choice you'll make wisely. But the proclamation of the gospel message, while God chooses who will be saved, the gospel message is the means by which he saves. I'd like to give you three weapons in your fight for the souls of your loved ones. These might seem basic, but I am very convinced they're underused. So I'm going to be as as precise as I can. Three weapons in the fight for the souls of your loved ones under the banner of the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The first weapon in the fight for the soul of your loved one, prayer that is extraordinary. Prayer that is extraordinary. Leviticus 6.13 says, Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, used this text as an illustration of the prayers of the saints being an ever-present, ever-burning flame before God. And he urged his congregation in a moving sermon to take times of special prayer for all that burdens them. And he said this, quote, Let us go with weeping and ask for the spirit of grace and of supplications. Let us set apart special seasons for extraordinary prayer. Now keep this in mind. All of our greatest texts in the Bible on the doctrine of election, the greatest ones ever, were penned by the Apostle Paul, the one who said God chooses for those to be saved. And yet he's the one who most urgently requests extraordinary prayer for the salvation of his hearers. Colossians 4.3, he says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ 
in 2 Thessalonians 3, 1, he says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. What does he mean by be honored? That people would be saved, there would be conversions, there would be salvations. If you're crushed with the weight of hoping for the salvation of a loved one, could I say this? It is only in a time of extraordinary prayer that that weight will be lifted, that your burden will be fully turned over to the Lord. So what do I do? Maybe you schedule a late night alone to cry out to God on behalf of your lost loved one. Maybe it's an early morning. Maybe you put one day a week. Maybe you put an hour every day scheduling extraordinary seasons of prayer. And our brother Spurgeon wrote of these times of extraordinary prayer. He said, let us give to God our hearts, all blazing with love, and seek his grace so that the fire may never be quenched. Let us use texts of scripture as fuel for our heart's fire. They are live coals. Let us be much alone with Jesus. Prayer that is extraordinary. Here's a second weapon in your fight for your loved one's soul. Protection that is an example. Protection that is an example. We saw a situation recently in our Sunday evening messages through Ezra and Nehemiah. But you recall that in Ezra chapter 4, as the returning exiles were preparing to rebuild the temple of God, unbelievers in the area around Jerusalem, those who claimed to worship God, and yet they were, they were syncretists, meaning they worshiped all the other gods also, they said, we want to join in with you. We want to help. We worship God. But the leaders of the Jews told them in Ezra 4, verse 3, you shall have nothing to do with us building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel. And that might sound harsh. And in today's popular thinking in namby-pamby evangelicalism, we might be tempted to say, hey, you, you should let them help. Let them pretend they're a part of you so that eventually they might come to faith in God. Actually, just the opposite is true. The Jews made a clear statement that they would not violate God's holiness that pretending, by pretending that unbelievers are actually believers. So what do we mean by protection as an example? And we're going to come back to the exile here in a minute. What do we mean by protection as an example? First of all, in the church, in the church, unbelievers, those who have not yet come to faith in Christ, you are absolutely welcome here. You are welcome to come and to listen to the gospel, and we pray for that. We, we ask you as members to bring your lost relatives here. We, we, we have a, a team effort, right? Your part is to bring them, and my part is to preach the gospel to them. But if an unbelieving gay couple comes and begins showing physical affection, no, that won't happen here. If an unbeliever wants to cause problems, no, that won't happen here. If an unbeliever wants to push for sexual immorality, such as transgenderism, no, that won't happen here. If an unbeliever, such as our governor, wants to try to control when we meet and how we meet, no, that won't happen here. We have a membership process to demonstrate that being a Christian is being set apart, following Christ at all costs. And I've lost track of the number of times the elders have said no to a membership application because we didn't see genuine fruit or a genuine salvation experience. So, are unbelievers welcome to come and hear the gospel? Absolutely. Are they welcome to disrupt the church? No. How about in your family? And this is where the rubber really meets the road here. 
Men, your first responsibility is to your home. Your number one responsibility is to your marriage and your family. They are to be set apart unto God. You are to have a home that opens the Bible. You're to have a home that prays. You're to have a home that goes to church. You're to have a home that honors Christ in the home. You're to have a home that speaks only uh, greatness and the loftiness of God and doesn't speak flippantly of him. So should you welcome your unbelieving lost relative into your home? Absolutely, as long as they know that Christ will be honored in your home. If they want to have a filthy mouth and won't tone it down, they can't come. If they want to flaunt a sinful lifestyle like bringing a gay lover, they can't come. If they want to put things into your small children's minds and violate the pure truth you're trying to teach your kids, they can't come. If they're generally difficult and terrible and rude people to get along with and violate the peace of your home, they can't come. Well, what if you're invited to something outside your home? If it's going to violate the peace of your family, if it's going to make your children see and hear things, especially at a small age that are disturbing, if it's going to alter the focus of your marriage from having an evening of peace and love to an all-night-long tense discussion about the horrible things your family just witnessed, then no, you don't go. And in any of those cases, you simply inform your lost loved one, I care about you and I'm praying for you and I want to share the gospel with you, but I'm loyal to the Lord first. And I will not have my marriage or my children around that sort of sinful behavior. Maybe you and I can go out. Maybe you and I can talk sometime, but I'm not going to subject my family to this. I follow Christ before I ever will try to please you. Now, this is not some sort of legalism where you're saying to a lost person that if you would just stop doing certain things, you'd be saved. That's not it at all. What it is is you saying, because of your behavior that continually violates the peace of my family or makes my wife and children uncomfortable, I will not participate. I can't. You do not expose your family, and if at all possible yourself, to horrific sin just to make an unbeliever happy. You take every chance you can to proclaim the gospel, but you live a sanctified, set-apart life. It takes wisdom, it takes discernment, it takes prayer for every situation, but in general, never do you violate your own conscience or radically impact the spiritual protection or peace of your home because you think this might lead a lost person to Christ. It won't. Back in Ezra, you remember what happened? When the temple was finally finished, the Jews celebrated their first official Passover after reinstituting temple worship. And you remember who celebrated Passover? Ezra 6.21, it was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile. That makes sense. And also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. Israel as a people, was to remain protected and distinct, not tainted by the pagan idol worshipers around them. But it doesn't mean they weren't a positive influence. Because what was the result of Israel saying, no, you will not violate the sanctity of my worship of God? The result was that they saw, the the pagans around them saw Israel's devotion to the Lord and it became a witness and became the means of drawing them to genuine faith. When an individual or an entire local church try to please the unbeliever and try to mix and mingle with the unbeliever somehow with the notion that somehow overlooking their lost state will attract them to the gospel, that never works. It never works. 
Instead, they must see that following Christ means being set apart, sanctified. So you have prayer that is extraordinary. You have protection that is an example. You have a third weapon. We'll call this one persistence that is extensive. Persistence that is extensive. Let me offer you this. The decision to stop proclaiming the gospel to your lost loved ones is not your decision. That's the Lord's decision. The Lord makes that decision. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And so it's not your decision. And as you continue to share the gospel with your loved one, they might say, I don't want to hear it. Listen very carefully. They don't get to make that call. How pointless is it for you to stop proclaiming the gospel just to preserve the relationship? What are you preserving it for? To what end? So you can have a holiday with some fake pleasantries? Yeah, you're going to hell, but we had a great Thanksgiving, didn't we? Listen, unbelievers do not get to decide whether you proclaim the gospel or not. They only get to decide if they stay in the room while you're doing it. That's their decision. They get to decide if they stay on the phone while you're telling them the gospel. They get to decide whether they walk out of church or not when you bring them here. And someone might say, well, I don't want to be annoying That's right. What the lost loved one thinks of you is more important than his eternal destiny. Or someone else might say, well, I don't want to come off as pushy. How's this for pushy? On the last day of the Feast of Booths, this is a long eight-day celebration in Jerusalem, a feast which incidentally traditionally included looking toward uh, the future for Messiah. How pushy was Jesus? How annoying was Jesus? John 7.37 says, on the last day of the feast, the great day... This is the day when everybody's celebrating. The wine is flowing. Great things are happening. It's the the high point of the day. Choirs are singing. It's party time. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In other words, put down your wine and come to me. If anyone thirsts spiritually, let him come to me and drink. You are to be like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.10, we are fools for Christ's sake. When do you give up proclaiming the gospel to your unsaved loved ones? Never. Never. But what if they reject me? What if they won't speak to me? What if they won't come to my house? What if they won't have a conversation with me? What if they put a guilt trip on me and say, "You you keep talking about Jesus so I can't be around you? then you retreat yet again to prayer that is extraordinary. And by the way, you have a secret weapon you can pray for. Lord, they won't listen to me. Would you bring 10 other people into their path that they will listen to? And if your unbelieving loved one says, look, I know you love me and I love you and I want to spend time with you, but you can't talk about Jesus. Then you lovingly Tell them a quick story. You tell them that you also want to spend time with them. And you tell them the story of Acts 4 when the apostles were arrested and how the Jerusalem council ordered them in Acts 4.18 not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. 
Acts 4, 19 and 20, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We have no option. We must speak of Christ. And so you say to the loved one, I love you and I'm thankful for your love for me, but I am in Christ. Christ is in me. You asking me not to speak of Jesus is like asking me not to breathe. So now you're armed with seven truths. God chose those to be saved. The family of God is defined by obedience to the gospel. Salvation is the work of God alone. The lost will be judged in total righteousness. In the coming kingdom, your passion for the glory of God will be all-consuming. Whatever grief and heartache you have now will be removed. And the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Can you live with that? I can live with that. And armed with those truths, now you can rest easily in the Lord as he sovereignly works out his own plan for whose glory? For his glory. His glory alone. That being said, pray boldly. We've prayed often here that every child that walks through our doors or crawls through our doors or is strollered in through our doors, we've just said we're going to pray that every one of them comes to faith in Christ. And I'm going to pray that. That'll be my last prayer for this church. I know some of you here are struggling with your lost relatives and we'll pray together for them and we'll believe the Lord. Will God save them simply because they're related to you? No. Will God save them because you ask? Probably. And we're okay with that, right? We're okay with that. I want you to look around. I don't often do this. I'm not being charismatic. Just look around for a minute. This is your family. This is your family. These are the very people you will spend all of eternity with. But let's pray for a few of these empty seats to be filled. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father, these things burden us. Oh, Lord, to have a mom close to death who doesn't know you, to have a child who is now in his 30s or 40s or 50s in bad health who doesn't know you, to have prayed for a spouse for 30 and 40 years who still doesn't know you after living literally in the same bed with a Christian. These things weigh on us. And so we, we run to your mercy. We grasp a hold of your feet because we can't comprehend this. But ultimately, Lord, we bend to your will. We bow to the reason for all things, and that is your glory. But Lord, we boldly pray while there is breath in our lungs, we would pray for all of our lost loved ones because we believe it would give you so much glory to see them all before the throne of heaven, rejoicing and praising God for the prayers of a faithful grandma, for the prayers of a faithful child, for the prayers of a faithful parent. That's what we ask you for, Lord. But in the last day, when we all stand before you, we will revel and marvel at your perfect will. For that alone is what gives you glory. And we pray these things to the glory and to the honor of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who makes the narrow gate possible. Amen.